Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Joshua Kurlancic, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations, and the author, most recently, of Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's uneven campaign to influence Asia and the world. We'll discuss the ambition, reach, and the limits of that campaign. Joshua, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So I think there can sometimes be a tendency to portray China as this sort of Machiavellian behemoth, that its resources are infinite, its strategies are decades long. One of the things I most enjoyed about this book, and the subtitle stresses that this is China's uneven campaign, right. is that you look at both what is working and what's not working, what is in some cases, spectacularly misfiring in this campaign. So I want to get into that in some depth, but I thought we could start with just a high-level overview of what it is we're talking about here in terms of this global media offensive. What does that look like, and where do you see this starting from? How far back do you date this campaign? Well, the book looks at a broad range of influence activities. The general point is that China has boosted its ability and interest in just interfering generally in other countries, domestic politics and societies. And one way is through state media and control of local media. And I mean, I would say the expansion of this dates back about 10 years, probably corresponding to the rise of Xi Jinping. But I mean, the roots are go back farther. But China has had for a long time, this fear that it is not controlling what it calls discourse power, that themes in the world news, themes about China, narratives about China, narratives about the world that involve China are all dominated by 
media outlets based in prominent liberal democracies like the BBC, American outlets, Japanese outlets, French outlets, etc. And they wanted to expand their ability to influence global narratives about China and about any issues related to China and even about things not related to China. And so that probably dates back at least 10 years, probably farther, but the real ramp up of all of this has dates back to the late Hu Jintao period and early Xi Jinping, where they started pouring money into state media outlets and probably making more concerted effort to de facto take over the Chinese language media in most countries in the world, which they have been quite successful in. And how much of this is about interfering or shaping politics and discourse in the target countries here versus how much is about shaping perceptions of China. I guess the phrase that Jessica Chen Weiss has used about making the world safe for autocracy, is this about managing external perceptions of China or is this back to more of a kind of Maoist model of exporting ideology, trying to affect real change beyond China's borders? No, it's not a Maoist ideology, but I think part of it is wanting to push back against any foreign narratives, particularly narratives from major liberal democracies about China. Part of it is about promoting, at least until the complete disaster of the last couple of years in China of the zero COVID with the lockdown of the protests, the failure to use those lockdowns to effect- effectively vaccinate the population, etc. But before that, it was partly to promote an idea that democracies were failing and that China had a better model of managerial governance and authoritarian pseudo-capitalism because Xi Jinping has actually rolled back a lot of the kind of the private sector in China, which was the main driver of China's growth, et cetera. And to do that, I think a major third part was they wanted to create media outlets that could at least be seen by the world as semi-credible. I think their goal was, I talk about in the book, to make it like Al Jazeera, an outlet anchored, owned, and based in, in an authoritarian state, which doesn't cover certain issues related to that authoritarian state, but which is considered a credible outlet about a lot of issues in the world and has lots of excellent journalists. And China hired a lot of excellent journalists foreign journalists in many countries, as well as quality local journalists, and like foreign journalists in many countries in the West, in Africa and South Asia, et cetera, and tried to make it a more credible outlet. It just that kind of failed for most of its state media outlets other than Xinhua, which I talk about in the book as a unique exception. Do you want to go into that in more detail? So Xinhua is the Chinese state news agency, and you draw a real division between the sort of CGTN, for my sins, I've spent a lot of time watching Chinese propaganda, it's not a scintillating watch. But Xinhua you see as having really quite pervasive and growing reach. Right. Yeah, I think that the difference between, say, so China has three major global state media outlets, China Global Television Network, which is a global TV network, which is available in many countries and in theory is similar in its breadth to the to CNN or the BBC. Or BBC is more complex than CNN, but a global television network. They have a global radio network called China Radio International that appears in many countries. Not so common in many liberal democracies, but you can get it in the United States and other countries. And then they have a third one, major state media outlet called Xinhua, which is a newswire. The difference between Xinhua and the other two 
One major difference is a listener or a viewer has to actively seek out a TV or a radio station. Basically, it's not a most people don't passively consume television or radio. You could, you could just be sitting on your couch and just watching whatever TV comes on, but that's not really normally true about news, especially niche news channels. CGTN and CRI have to be actively sought out and the news that they produce has gotten worse in over the last few years as she has become more authoritarian and China has become more defensive, partly because of its disastrous COVID strategies, its enormous unpopularity in the world, the growing rift between China and many liberal democracies. China is incredibly unpopular in Europe, the United States, and some developing countries. And so those channels have a fair amount of evidence that I collected on their audience chairs is very low in not only in liberal democracies like the United Kingdom, but also in developing countries. A newswire, by contrast, people can wind up passively reading it. Most, I think most readers, most people who read the newspaper or online don't really, except for people who are like media elites or people who are specifically looking for one famous columnist or reporter, don't really pay any attention, frankly, to the bylines or where the stories come from. And a lot of news organizations around the world, because they're strapped for money and because Reuters and Bloomberg and even the Associated Press, which is a nonprofit, and Agence France Press are much more expensive than Xinhua. Xinhua is sometimes provided for free to put to news outlets. They have picked up Xinhua increasingly. Xinhua's signed content sharing agreements with a lot of news outlets. And for example, like in Thailand, a lot of Xinhua copy gets picked up and just winds up in the local press translated into Thai. And they may credit Xinhua at the bottom of the article, they may not, but most people probably wouldn't even notice. And so as a result, it's just seeping into the newspaper and online news coverage of many places, particularly developing countries, without people having to actively seek it out. So it's a huge difference. This may seem too obvious a question, but what is the end result of that? What effect do you see that having as those wires are picked up and are disseminated in Chinese language media outside of China? Well, yeah, it's a big problem. I think that it's already been seen that probably it's in the short term in some countries, it's having an effect in which the more you use Xinhua copy, Xinhua is not, does not enjoy the editorial independence of the BBC or other state media outlets like the United, the BBC is a little bit different than state media outlet, but even the United States is state media outlets like Voice of America or Radio Free Asia enjoy editorial independence. And the Xinhua does not at all. It's still essentially, it produces some decent coverage about things not related to China, but it's still essentially producing just propaganda about China. And Xinhua is continues to expand, the more that Xinhua becomes picked up in a lot of media outlets, it becomes problematic and you already see sort of Chinese narrative seeping in, et cetera. And what do you see as some of the best examples of where this is not working? And in some cases, actually backfiring and undermining perceptions of China overseas? Well, it's definitely not working. So there's a second aspect where China has through both investment by actual state companies and simply having owners in different countries who are pro-China business people buy up the local Chinese language press. There is very little 
ability for Chinese language readers and speakers in places, including liberal democracies, where there are a lot of Chinese language readers and speakers like the United States, Canada, Australia, Malaysia, et cetera, to get any independent coverage of China. So that's also a major factor. Where China has failed, I think, is definitely with CGTN and CRI. They have gained no audience share and have turned into sort of turgid propaganda. In terms of its just overall influence efforts, China has badly alienated most liberal democracies, but partly through this sort of failure of these media efforts, partly through, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, just over hyper-aggressive what was being called wolf warrior diplomacy, really aggressive, assertive diplomacy, insulting other countries for no real clear reason, and partly because of the use of economic coercion against countries. And then in terms of some of the places in Eastern and Central Europe where China actually had a warm relationship, they completely blew, like Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, they completely blew that up by supporting Putin in the Ukraine war. They also have alienated a number of countries through having, this is not media, but having more traditional types of influence being caught, like paying politicians and meddling through disinformation in elections and in political life that has alienated people in Taiwan and Australia and New Zealand and many other countries. So overall, the reason the book subtitle is China's uneven efforts to influence Asia and the world. I think it's a mixed bag. Some of their tactics have been successful and others really haven't. And then you add in China's undermining its own image that's projected the last three years. It's a question whether in the long term they can adapt and make these both the media and other influenced efforts more effective. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host The New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You mentioned Al Jazeera as one of the sort of early examples or models that China saw as being valuable to emulate. Are there also elements of Russian state media, Russian propaganda channels that you you think Beijing is learning from and perhaps trying to replicate? How do you see that relationship? I think that they've learned from Russia some aspects of disinformation and other tactics, but and they've particularly have learned from Russia how to use disinformation to play on organic problems in within societies. So Russia has been very good at leveraging their disinformation based on like organic problems within other societies like the United States, racial justice issues, or in European countries, issues of separatism of certain places, etc. And China has increased its ability to do that. I don't think China's state media outlets can reach what Russia at its peak, now Russia has been banned a lot of places, was doing with RT because the earliest, the RT was basically, was given a fair amount of freedom and was using that to spin wild conspiracy theories, but was also allowed a fair amount of freedom, at least before the Ukraine war. And China's leaders simply won't uh, allow that. They're just not going to be able to allow that level of freedom. One easy response to the book is to say, well, how is this different from what so many countries do? But I think probably a more valuable question to ask is, are there parallels to to what China is doing now to what the United States and others, including on the Soviet side, did during the Cold War? Yes, there are parallels to the Cold War. But I think if you compare it to what the United States is doing today with its state media outlets and et cetera, or other countries, there there isn't because they enjoy Chinese walls or editorial independence. There are parallels definitely to what the United States and other Western countries did in the Cold War, where things like Voice of America were not, didn't have that editorial independence, and they were more propaganda outlets. So there are some definite parallels, and hopefully the United States and other countries have learned from that. And that's why, at least in the U.S., there was barriers put in to ensure that they not just propaganda outlets. But there's definitely some overlaps. Let me ask you a very unfair question. Um, a very which, unfair question? A very unfair question, which is to say, do you think this is, you, you've highlighted all of the areas in which this has been unsuccessful, 
But do you see on the Chinese side then innovation, adaptation, more sophisticated ways to work around the barriers and the limits that they've come up against? Yeah, I think that it's always an, I always tell people that it's a mistake to underestimate either China's regime's durability or their adaptability. People have been predicting the collapse of China for decades, and they've shown adaptability in other areas. And I think that uh, it's possible that they will. And Xi Jinping has tried to dial back some of this really aggressive diplomacy, and he has made a couple speeches about it. And he seems to be, he disappointed the former Chinese ambassador to Washington as foreign minister. And that fellow is definitely not a sort of wolf warrior diplomat. And China has shown some ability and adaptability in other areas where it had gotten a lot of criticism, like its massive Belt and Road lending program. So it's possible that they will show some adaptability. But in some of these areas, I don't know how they possibly can change, though, the basic factor that for at least the TV and radio state media outlets, as long as China remains an incredibly highly authoritarian state, it's much more authoritarian under Xi Jinping than it was under prior leaders going back to since Mao, that they can have such a highly authoritarian state and also have state media that can in any way be credible because the state media, most of the foreign reporters, frankly, have already quit because the environment was suffocating as she became more powerful. And even some of the good Chinese reporters have quit. And I think that it's going to be very difficult for them to ever make those two state outlets more credible. But the other things like responding to concerns about economic coercion or over-aggressive diplomacy or political influence campaigns or disinformation, they may become more adaptable, becoming more sophisticated. That's certainly one way. Or they may become, in the case of the actual diplomacy, more adaptable by backing off a little bit. But it's always a mistake to, I think, China showed enormous regime durability and enormous adaptability in the past in other areas. She is pretty, seems pretty unadaptable, but I would, it's always a mistake to write China off in either of those areas. Final brief question, which is adjacent to the book, which is the focus we're seeing again on TikTok and whether it can survive as a social media platform here in the United States. And what's your view? Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I think TikTok is not long in its current form. It's not long for its life in the United States, which is going to make. I have a 14-year-old son. He's not really that interested in TikTok yet. Of course, many of his friends are obsessed with it and it's going to make them very unhappy. I think just as to frame that, I think actually Biden's China policy has been tougher in many ways because it's been more consistent than Trump's and at least as tough as Trump's, but I would say tougher on China. And the fact that TikTok's servers, the parent company servers are based in China, users' data flows through China, there's already been multiple problems exposed where there was censorship of things related to China, that TikTok, there's enormous groundswell of anti-TikTok views in the U.S. Congress and in the executive branch. I think TikTok in its current form, like I said, is not long for the U.S. and probably there, because Europe actually has stricter rules. I know the UK is not part of Europe now, but on users' data, there's going to be changes. So I think either Biden just outright bans TikTok, which he can certainly do with an executive order. Trump did it. Biden reversed it. He could do that again. I don't know that's the likeliest thing. I think that the Biden administration recognized that TikTok is incredibly massive platform. 
and they will try to come up with some plan to have TikTok either divest its U.S. assets and keep data on U.S. servers or some other plan to keep data on U.S. servers. But as it is, I don't think it's viable long-term in the U.S. I think that's a good place to wrap this up. Joshua Kalancic, thank you again for joining us on the podcast and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much for having me. This has been World Review from The New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us and please consider leaving us a review, ideally a nice one. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.